This is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. From North State Public Radio in Northern California, I'm Jennifer Jewell. The first garden you experience when you enter through the small clapboard carriage house at Blythewold in Bristol, Rhode Island, is the embracing and lushly planted rose garden. Sweeping naturalistic herbaceous perennial borders tapestried with roses, peonies, iris, phlox, and alliums, to name a few from around the globe, curve around the essentially square space. It is full of color and light and vibrating with bees and birds. In front of you is the garden's iconic beach stone cobble wall and moon gate, a nod to classic Asian garden motifs solidly built of local stone on local soil. Through the moon gate lies the rest of the turn of the 19th century 33-acre estate sloping down to Rhode Island's Narragansett Bay. Read as if it were a story, even this small portion of the garden is a narrative of valuing both aesthetics and environment. It's a tale of expansiveness and prosperity on both personal and public levels. It speaks of international travel, transport, and trade in ideas and objects, such as plants. Gardens, like architecture or any of the other arts, are imbued with signs and signifiers of human history itself. From the plants included to the materials used to lay a garden out, you can read a great deal about time and place in any garden. This might be particularly true of gardens created and cared for at the turn of the 19th century in England and the U.S., Marked by the expanding financial, journalistic, and horticultural wealth of the industrial age and the turn of rigid Victorian ideals to Edwardian ones, both large affluent and mid-sized suburban gardens flourished. Plants from all over the world were being made available and sought after by professional and home gardeners alike. Garden design and garden journalism were proliferating on both sides of the Atlantic, and they mirrored social and cultural trends. Garden styles were moving from the very rigid and formal to the more naturalistic work of, say, William Robinson, a well-known Irish-born English garden designer and journalist, and Gertrude Jekyll, a highly influential amateur garden designer in England. This period in Western garden history marks one of the greatest increases in gardens as identifiers and artistic, recreational, personal expression. Horticultural collections, research, garden design, as well as garden thought and garden writing were being made available to more and more people of all walks of life. Today we're joined by Gail Reed, garden manager of Blythewold Mansion Gardens and Arboretum. Blythewold is nationally significant as one of the most fully developed examples of the country place era, an era in garden design in England and the U.S. in which the newly wealthy of the industrial age invested in country houses and designed appointed gardens as important aspects of life. Blythewold features a 45-room mansion and a series of gardens both formal and wild. An exceptional collection of rare and unusual plants, specimen trees, a turn-of-the-century potting shed and glasshouse, as well as whimsical stonework, reflect the historic moment and its port city, New England coastal present and historical place. With Blythewold, 
which is Welsh for happy wood. Since 1990, Gail is a Rhode Island certified horticulturalist and oversees day-to-day care of the flower gardens. She also manages the growth and maintenance of Blythewold's living container collection and oversees flower production in the garden greenhouses. Welcome, Gail. Thank you. I always like to start with you and your own personal history that led you to this place at this time. What, what were the early influences in your life that led you to a love of plants and a love of gardens and working in them? Well, I grew up in a family that owned a landscaping business and a garden center. Uh, my father's father, um, my grandfather, uh, was an estate gardener in the 1920s um, right here in Rhode Island. And um, he had six uh, sons who he uh, had a you know a workforce right there for him, and four went on to uh, have nurseries, have a garden center, and um, greenhouses. So I grew up um, in the business, and um, I uh, I always had a garden. I uh, my father I I was a tomboy. I had three brothers. I just spent a lot of time outdoors, mm-hmm. um, and. I always found time to be in a garden. Uh, My dad did indulge me with a flower garden of my own from as far back as I can remember. And I I just always, uh, I was an active child, you know, with lots of neighborhood friends. And um, I was on a YMCA swim team. I worked, but I always found time to be in the garden. I did go to Stockbridge School of Agriculture at UMass and at University of Rhode Island, with um, I have a degree in ornamental horticulture. So, I um, I've just always been around, been around it. And what brought you to being part of the Blythewold horticultural team? Um, well, I started here in 1990. Um, uh, when I left the, the business, um, I. I've always wanted to be in a garden, and I started to have a family, and um, I came to Blythewald and just fell in love. And I was fortunate to uh, meet Julie Morris, who was the director of horticulture at the time, and um, she was a wonderful mentor and asked me to work, and I uh, started out one day a week, and um, quickly you know, grew into more, into full-time, and uh, that's how I got to be blithefold. I was actually pregnant with uh, with my first son and went on a garden tour with Julie. And um, and she had said, if you ever want to switch and change. So I did. And uh, having a mentor with Julie was probably the luckiest thing that um, happened to me and falling into Blythewald. It was wonderful. And then you became the garden manager in 2008. Is that correct? Yes, Julie um, retired. I work with one other staff person. Um, I have to shout out to Betsy Eckholm and my student intern this year from the Landscape Architect Program at University of Rhode Island, Sean Coffey. And the three of us together um, work with my favorite part of the job, uh, about 35 garden volunteers. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a weekly um, weekly garden volunteer uh, program and all 35 don't come every single week but we get we get quite a few that come um, 20 or more uh, at least 
through the heat of this summer, and um, they're wonderful. They help us uh, weekly take care of the garden maintenance. And the mansion and gardens overlooks the Narragansett Bay, a description of the way the property slopes down to the water and kind of has a series of gardens that lead you from the mansion down along an edge of the property and then out into this open great lawn um, starts to illustrate some of the elements that make this a country place home and garden. Just Can you give a description of that for listeners who might not be familiar with the idea of an estate, you know, a historic estate garden, and they're on the coast. Well, um, you know, the country place era is sort of defined by a period of between 1890s and 1930s, um, where many of the wealthy um, created these, um, you know, country home retreats away from their homes in the city. You know, industrialism was booming, and um, there was a, a a lot of activity with wealthy making these um, grand homes with landscapes and a bit of a status symbol, I think, if you had your wealth also. And um, the uh, Blythewald had a beautiful setting being right on the water, and um, they took full advantage of that. And the owners wanted... Um, they wanted land. They were definitely looking for a land, a land that they could develop an arboretum and gardens. And so that's how um, Blythewell was perfect for them. The land at Blythewell was just perfect. And right across the bay, you have Newport with its famous series of mansions and estate gardens. But one of the things that really struck me when I visited Blythewold most recently was how loved in and lived in Blythewold feels. And I, I think that is carried over from a family who actually loved it and cared for it, not just held it as a large mansion status symbol that I often get the feeling of, though beautiful, in the Newport mansions. Yeah, absolutely. They, they did not want that. They wanted... Um, they wanted land, and the original owner, Bessie uh, Van Wickle McKee, she came from a family who were gardeners and horticulturalists in Pennsylvania, and she learned from her mother and her grandmother. So one thing they were looking for was a place for Bessie to make her gardens, and um, that's how she fell in love with the land to begin with, because the previous owner had sort of a, a, a landscape with that look to it, um, although uh, Bessie and her husband, Augustus, went around transforming it. But she collected trees, and um, she had the help of a landscape designer named John DeWolf. Mm -hmm. who, uh, he had family ties to Bristol, but he was the um, designer, the landscape designer at Prospect Park in New York. And he would come back and forth, and together they laid out um, Bessie's vision of um, of the landscape. And she was she was um, so it was just so well thought out. She wanted um, she she was very influenced by the English country uh, estates, and she 
uh, wanted a landscape that was harmonious and um, in a park-like setting, but having all different components that wouldn't compete with each other. She felt they should all complement each other and not one overshine the other. And I think that kind of holds true today. You go from one garden area to another, and they have totally different fields. Mm -hmm. They don't compete with each other. It's a wonderful um, sort of circuit that you walk around, um, and I'm sure you could go in any direction that you mm -hmm. want. We started, uh, when I visited most recently, coming out of the front entrance and uh, uh, of the mansion, and the mansion was um, nicely decorated with flowers from the cutting garden from around the estate, mm -hmm. and we went through the arboretum and then around through a, sh a beautiful shade garden, a, a small lawn with a, a little house folly on the far side, and then trying to remember from there, we get to the greenhouse and then the cutting garden and then the vegetable garden, and then down to the ocean view, and then back up through, uh, uh, along the edge of the great lawn and through the bamboo, Mm -hmm. and um, the, the woods, the woodland garden, and then ended up in the sunken garden and the terraces. And it, it really was. They flowed very, very nicely from one area to another. Much like the English uh, country estates, um, they had it very formal by the house with their that sunken uh, formal mixed border. Uh, we call the north garden. It's on the north side of the house. Um, and the family um, made the transition going through that wooded area, the Bosquet, and then down to the water, which was left very natural. Mm -hmm. So as you, wa you went away from the house, you left more of the formality, and it got to be more natural. And I think it's that combination of having um, that formal and natural uh, that transitions very well um, it's really uh, quite delightful for visitors to go through. I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place. Today we're speaking with Gail Reed, garden manager of Blythewold, a 33-acre estate open to the public on Rhode Island's Narragansett Bay. Blythewold is nationally significant as one of the most fully developed examples of the country place era mansion with an arts and crafts garden designed by landscape architect John DeWolf. We'll be back after a break to continue our conversation. Stay with us. If you're just joining us, I'm Jennifer Jewell, and this is Cultivating Place, conversations on natural history and the human impulse to garden. Gail Reed, garden manager of Blythewold, a 33-acre estate on Rhode Island's Narragansett Bay, joins us today. Blythewold is nationally significant as one of the most fully developed examples of the country place era with its mansion and extensive arts and crafts gardens open to the public. Welcome back. At what point did it become a public garden, Gail? So um, Bessie, uh, Bessie's oldest daughter, Marjorie, took over uh, the property uh, when Bessie and her stepfather passed away in the 40s. And her daughter, Marjorie, equally loved um, her, her uh, gardens and trees and the whole landscape. She, um, she didn't have any children, but she often, um, she, was, she shared it with the community. She had lots of garden clubs and um, horticultural clubs come and opened it up to the, 
Bristol community. So she died at 93 in 1976. And she had a stipulation in her will that if the money ran short, that the grounds would be protected before the mansion. She so loved her her gardens and and trees. So um, when she died... Uh, in 1976, uh, she left an endowment for it to be open to the public with the trust, and um, it was open in 1978 um, as a public garden. You have to remember it was a; it still has that private garden feel, mm-hmm. which is so nice. I mean, it's different than botanical gardens, and um, I think uh, that's the way Bessie and Marjorie, you know, would be happiest having that kind of a feel to it. When you walk around the garden, definitely there is this sense of visiting somebody's really well-loved garden, and Mm -hmm. it's got a strong sense of design and a really nice range of plants so that you're, you know, learning something, but great personality. You know, in terms of not only the layout and then the location and the materials used, what would you say are the details that really make this very specific to its place and time? Um, Well, I think having those different um, areas that you transition into and having each garden area feel very different, for instance, that um, the enclosed garden where the giant sequoia is and that little house they call the summer house, they... they, um, they used that as just an out a house where they you know would have tea or go in and out of the garden but that has a very different feel um than the bosquet which is that wooded area and the family started planting daffodils in that wooded area mm-hmm. and that's we have a a big daffodil display about 50,000 daffodils there and i think it's their um nurturing um, their placement of the trees is definitely unique, having these um, unique uh, tree collection, especially around the mansion. They were placed um, just perfectly 100 years ago, and here they are, um, beautiful specimens. And I think it was the family's, um, especially Bessie's, um, well-thought-out plan Mm -hmm. um, that really shows through. But the stone walls... um, And was that all local stone, Gail? um, Yes, it was mostly local stone. I think some some were brought up from Pennsylvania, Mm -hmm. um, where Bessie was from. But some, we have photos uh, documenting uh, them using, for instance, in the rock garden, they, they would find the stones right by the shore mm-hmm. and that's that we have photos of that um of how they they actually you know brought them up with horse and and contraptions um, and i think that's one of the things that really makes the garden feel so comfortable is this sense of being integrated into this big view across the narragansett bay but mm-hmm. being nicely designed so that you you don't feel exposed to the bay, just open to it, and mm-hmm. um, the local stones. And there are exotic plants and exotic kind of areas that speak to that country place era and this expansionist view towards Europe that the um, our culture had at that time. But there are enough native plants as well to not make it feel 
um, separate from the agricultural history and fields around it. Yeah, absolutely. She did, um, you know, they did collect, They having a tree collection was something um, they, a lot of wealthy did, and having exotics, um, collecting exotics were, were um, very prominent. And Bristol had a, um, a port here that was very active, and um, plants had come in through that port from, you know, Asia had become a, um, a place to go for plants. So it um, wasn't unusual to, to get some of these different species here. In fact, in 1926, uh, they had a visit from um, Arnold Arboretum because they had a, a Chinese tune tree bloom, and it, no one had seen it in this country before. And it was, um, at the time, it was called Cedrella sinensis. It's now Tuna sinensis. And Thomas, um, I mean, Alfred Rader and um, Chinese Wilson came down from Arnold Arboretum. And when they came, they told Bessie that she um, had so many species that she, in fact, had her own Arboretum here. And she was over the moon about I was going to say, that. she must have been she, thrilled. She wrote, she wrote about it. There were photographs of the men on the property. Um, she was just so thrilled. And um, so I think... You know, her, her work, her previous work, um, collecting these trees and to have that acknowledgement was wonderful. And there are wonderful n- sort of subtext narratives running through this garden, which I find very moving. The connection to Pennsylvania and the Welsh community there, the connection to the industrial age and how the sort of rising affluent used their money and this urge or impulse to educate and share and collect and botanize, which was a very particular moment. And then you have this wonderful thread, to me wonderful thread, of the the feminist movement coming up at that point with um, not only seeing Bessie's strong personality in this garden, but then her two daughters, who one of whom took it on more fully and really shepherded it forward. In your opinion, in, or in your mind, what are the greatest lessons that visiting gardeners or history lovers learn in this garden? Um, well, one of the unique things you just mentioned, um, I'll touch again upon, is that uh, it was women who really were the driving force in this garden. And Which was Bessie, not usual in these no, gardens. No, there were some, but not um, it, not that Many and mm-hmm. Bessie um, to have the same vision in the in the family um, since 1896 when they started, right until 1976 when Marjorie um, passed away was was pretty unique and and that that in itself is a great history lesson. They also had a, a woman named Estelle Clements who was a family friend who came to live with Bessie when her first husband passed away, and she was pregnant with her long-awaited daughter um, at the time. So this woman came to help out. But she ended up being not only a, a great family friend, the daughters called her Aunt Deli. She was very close to them. Uh, she was treated like family. but um, And she was a surrogate to Bessie in the household and the gardens. Uh, but Jennifer, when you come next, I'll have to take you up to our archival room, which mm. I'll show you. Uh, Estelle wrote uh, a line a day diary 
from 1904 to 1928. And it's a treasure trove of information. And it starts with the, the temperature and the, um, the weather, and then writes a tidbit. And she often wrote about the garden. So we know when um, the Magnolia Stellata was planted, or the stone wall went up here, or um, when a tree came down. It's just, um, it's beautiful to look at. It's beautiful penmanship, although everything is transcribed. But it's fascinating. And so it was women who really created this, um, this beautiful garden. There's so much that we'd love people to take away from the garden. Um, one is, you know, just, I think, looking at gardens uh, for their sheer beauty and their artistic qualities. And then just the environment, just how they're such great connections to the environment and how all this is worth preserving. All our the history here is so worth preserving. Blythewold has quite a horticultural staff. You have, um, I believe, a horticulturalist that works with you. And then, as you mentioned, you have some educational interns, and then you have this wonderful core of volunteers. As you, Gail, in your garden manager position, look toward the future, what are your hopes for the garden moving forward? Oh, definitely the mentoring. I think we need to mentor the next generation of gardeners, and we need to mentor the next generation of garden professionals. So I hope that um, those two, two qualities, those two things are the most important. And I, in visiting the garden this past summer, have a strong sense that you are also educating and mentoring the next generation of garden lovers and garden visitors, which right. maybe is a, a population then just like you, having gone on the tour with your original mentor, um, maybe that's part of how we cultivate that next generation of garden-educated and caring garden professionals. Yes, yes, I hope so. Me too, me too, Gail. Mm -hmm. Thank you for your work. Good, Jennifer. Thank you for having me. Blythewold's Arboretum is currently one of the best non-institutional collections of its time in the Northeast. Its grounds include species from North America, Europe, China, and Japan. Notable individual specimens include black tupelo, dawn redwood, franklinia, a weeping pagoda tree, katsura, and what is thought to be the largest giant sequoia on the East Coast, planted in 1911. Gail Reed, our guest today, is a Rhode Island certified horticulturalist, and as garden manager, she oversees day-to-day -day care of the flower gardens, garden volunteers, and educational programs at Blythewold. Blythewold continues to reflect and be a beacon for horticultural joy, research, and education. Gail and her staff are hosting open greenhouse days and a nature exhibit in the 1901 potting shed the first two Sundays in November. Join us again next week as the conversation on the many ways people engage in and grow from the cultivation of their places continues. Cultivating Place is a co-production of North State Public Radio and JewelGarden.com. The program is produced by Sarah Bohannon. For this week's audio archive or to subscribe to the podcast, please visit mynspr.org. For more information, including many photos of Blythewold House and Gardens, please visit JewelGarden.com. For daily photos and more, follow Cultivating Place on Instagram and Facebook. Until next week, enjoy the cultivation of your place. I'm Jennifer Jewell.